Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. As a young boy growing up in New Jersey, a year-end holiday treat was setting up our model railroad. It gave me and my two brothers hours of fun and an opportunity to learn a little about the steam age of railroads. This is Kurt Repencheck, your host at the National Parks Traveler. Our first railroad featured Lionel O-gauge locomotives and cars. Later, we moved into HO-gauge trains, and many years later, I had an N-gauge layout. That boyhood love of model railroads drove me to visit Golden Spike National Historical Park in northern Utah, not far from the Great Salt Lake. That's where, back on May 10th of 1869, the Transcontinental Railroad was completed, when the Jupiter and number 119 steam locomotives of the Central Pacific and Union Pacific Railroads met head-on. To learn more about those two locomotives, I headed north to Promontory Summit and caught up with Ranger Cole Chisholm, who is the engineer who drives the two locomotives at the park. I'll be back in a minute with Cole. Hi, Kurt Repencheck with National Parks Traveler. Today we're at Golden Spike National Historical Park in northern Utah. We're up here during the steam festival that runs between Christmas and New Year's every year. And we've come up here to, to meet the engineer, Cole Chisholm, who's going to show us around the Jupiter locomotive. So Cole, we're in this uh, Jupiter locomotive. I mean, this isn't the original one. Correct. Yeah, this is a replica that was uh, completed in 1979 for the Park Service. It's gorgeous. I mean, there's a lot of brass on here and uh, obviously the, the original paint colors. Yeah, this is pretty much what you would have seen in the 1860s. Yeah. It's built within a quarter of an inch of accuracy, size-wise. The colors are as accurate as we can possibly get you at this point. Uh -huh. All the brass you see is what you would have seen back then. All this stuff here that looks like gold paint is actually 23 karat gold leafing. So it's, it's essentially what you would have seen. So, so this is gold leafing? Mm-hmm. Yeah, back then it was the, uh, the Gilded Age in the United States. Most people know it as the Victorian era. So sure. If you had the money, you showed off that you had the money. But it was a, also a form of advertisement for the railroad. The United States had so much immigration at that time, and literacy rates weren't that great, that finding a common language in which to advertise your company was kind of difficult. But everyone understands bright colors and shiny objects, and much like a fishing lure, it would attract the eye. Yeah. And in theory, if your engine could look better than your competitors, you might get more ticket sales than your competitors. No kidding. I mean, it's gorgeous. It's a, it's a work of art, for sure. Oh, yeah. Now, and of course, you know, across the way, you've got the Union Pacific um, 119. It was a race back then to see who could get across the country first, wasn't it? It was, uh, especially after the Railroad Act of 1864 came in and kind of amended the first act. They kind of got rid of the end point because the Central Pacific originally was only supposed to go to the California-Nevada border. They didn't much care for that idea. There was so much more land that they thought they could get to before the Union Pacific, so Congress opened that up and changed a few of the original laws in the 1862 act but they never specified where the new meeting point would be. So for the companies, their thought was, well, all that's open, first one there wins. Yeah. And so that's what really fueled the sudden lurch forward and trying to 
lay track as fast as we possibly could. Yeah. So where did the Jupiter start? Uh, so uh, Jupiter's company, uh, Central Pacific, started in Sacramento, California, and started working their way east uh, through the Sierra Nevadas. So they had a little bit of a tougher slog in the beginning part because they had the Sierra Nevada mountain. Sure, sure. Through. Big climb. Oh, yeah. And, you know, a good day of progress is eight inches a, a day through the Granite Mountains. So it, it took them quite a while to, to break through. And on top of getting some of the worst snowstorms the Sierra Nevadas had ever seen up to that point, they were constantly digging out of snow so they could continue to, to build the grade for their line. Yeah. And where did the Union Pacific start? Union Pacific started in uh, Omaha, Nebraska. Uh, so okay. they had a lot easier climb up to the Rockies. A sure. lot of flat, flat grades. So. Yeah. And just a chance that they, they met here at Promontory Point? Yeah. Uh, in fact, the, the grading parties were allowed to go 300 miles in advance of the track layers. And so you would get a partial payment uh, for laying the grade, but you wouldn't get the land and the rest of the payment until after serviceable track was on it. So when the two companies, their grading parties met roughly in this area, technically they thought, well, the tracks aren't down, so the company doesn't own it yet. So they actually parallel graded past each other for 250 miles. Congress found out they were doing this in April of 1869, but by then the Union Pacific had graded all the way out to uh, Humboldt Wells, Nevada, hmm. and the Central Pacific had made it roughly to Evanston, Wyoming. They said, we're not paying for two railroads. You need to pick a point to meet or we're going to take over and do it ourselves. So. The two companies got together in Washington and they figured that this point here was equidistant from where the track layers were. Because the track layers were still 60 miles apart. This just happened to be the middle point. So the two companies then kind of adjusted their grades to meet each other here at this point. And that's why we're, we're located out in the middle of the promontory. Yeah, no, it's gorgeous, northern Utah. Now, you run the steam festival, like I said, between Christmas and New Year's every year. Is that... Uh that's not the only time the engines come out. No. Uh, so every year, uh, typically May 1st through Columbus Day in October, both engines will be out and operating on the tracks uh, three times a day, uh, once in the morning, once at 1 o'clock, and again uh, right before we take them back to the shop for the night. Yeah. And then typically on Saturdays we'll have costume reenactors come out and actually recreate the ceremony itself. So you can get a chance to see the engines operate every day of the week, but if you want to see the, the full show, Saturdays are the best day to come out. Yeah, yeah. Now in a little while we'll be, we'll be outside and we'll see the locomotive come out, Jupiter come out. But right now we're still in the engine house, and what is the preparation involved? Uh, so prep work, it, it starts uh, for us at 8 a.m. We have to light the fire. It's going to take a while for the, the steam locomotive to build up pressure. Where we've run the day before, it only takes us about an hour and a half hour and 45 minutes to get her back up to operating pressure of about 140 pounds. Then we can take her out of the shop. Uh, but in the meantime, it's going to you know, take a while to build up that pressure, so you're constantly checking the fire. But then also, this machine has a lot of moving parts that have to be lubricated and oiled. So uh, you'll probably see some of the firemen around today that are going around oiling all those points to make sure they're lubricated so when we pull out of here, everything moves nice and smooth. And and you have to do that every day? Every day. Now, as far as uh, the firebox, I see you've got a, a load of firewood here. I mean, when I was growing up, you'd think about steam locomotives, you'd, you'd think about the coal that would be shoveled into the firebox. Um, was Jupiter always running on wood? or? Yeah, Jupiter was a wood burner. Uh, coming out of California, they didn't have any coal reserves to speak of in California at the time. 
And the only way they could have coal shipped out to them was either overland, which would have been by wagon, which wouldn't be cost effective, or they could ship it around South America, but you really don't want to wait six months for a, a shipment of coal just to burn it in your engines. But you're cutting through the Sierra Nevada mountains to lay your track. You're having to make railroad ties, so what the Central Pacific would do would set up lumber mills and then mill their ties, but then whatever was left over you could burn in your engines. It's not the most efficient fuel source. A full load of wood for us would maybe get us 15 to 30 miles before we need more. But when you're surrounded by it, and that's the best fuel source you have at the time, if that's what's available, that's what you're going to use. Yeah. Whereas the, the Union Pacific, they were tied into the Eastern Network, so shipping coal out to the end of track for them wasn't too big a deal. So they had a mix of wood and coal, but for the most part, coal was the more efficient fuel source. Yeah, yeah. Well, let's take a look at the firebox and, and how you load it. Okay, so we're up here in the, the cab with the firebox, and you've got a load of wood here. Now, they would have more wood back in the day when they're actually laying track to keep this guy going? Yeah, um, where this is the last day of our steam fest, we tried to guesstimate about how much wood we'd burn through today. We want to try to end with an empty tender, so when we start doing work on her, we don't have to offload a ton of logs at the end of the day. Uh, typically, when we run in the summer, both stacks are about this high, yeah. and we'll burn through a full stack in a day. So we'll probably burn through... I would guess at least 90% of this by the end of today. And how far would this power the locomotive? A full load is about 15 to 30 miles. We're doing five runs today. It's kind of hard to guess. Yeah. Maybe five miles for us today, but we're also doing a lot of sitting and you're having to keep the pressure up while you do that. Right. So even if you're not running, if you want to keep that pressure up, you're going to have to burn. The engine, kind of small space in there. Yeah, it, not a lot of room, uh, just enough to get the job done. Um, of course, later on, as engines would get bigger and more efficient, you'd have a lot more room in the cab. Sure, sure, but, but back in the day, you had, what, an engineer and one fireman or two firemen up here? Just one fireman, typically. Uh, your fireman is the one in charge of keeping the boiler stoked, keeping your, your water level where it needs to be and your, your pressure on point. Uh, the engineer is the one that then is then using that steam and expending it. So your fireman's producing it, the engineer's spending it. Um, you'll notice most of the controls are in arm's reach of this seat box here. The engineer sits over here. That's why most of the levers can be reached from there. Sure. Your fireman doesn't have too much in the way of things to do on this side, but he's usually not in the seat all the time because he's constantly feeding that fire. Um, and the reason that range, 15 to 30 miles, seems so small is because your wood will burn hot, but it burns out faster. So you're constantly having to stoke that fire. Yeah. So if you're going uphill, you're going to be using a lot of steam, so your fireman's going to have to be throwing a lot of wood in to try to keep the heat up to keep producing. So can you show us how he throws that wood in there? Yeah. Uh, so you just come in here, open your firebox door. Grab a log and pitch it in. So how big is that firebox? Uh, it's a uh, it's decent sized. I can stand upright in it, not hit my head. And how much would they typically keep the wood level in there? Uh, you essentially just trying to cover the grates that are in there. Uh -huh. uh, so you're getting airflow from underneath to heat your fire up. But if you have any holes in there, 
what's going to happen is that cold air is going to come in and then hit your flu sheet. And that's going to drop your pressure because now you're getting cold air to flow through. So now that most of that firebox is covered, we should be seeing a lot more heat yeah. producing more steam. So right now we're sitting at 22 pounds. Right, yeah. But here in a 45 minutes, we're going to want that to be a little bit higher so we can start turning on some of the auxiliary equipment we have. And how much higher do you need it to operate? Uh, we shoot for 140. 140. But once she gets hot, she'll start climbing. And you can kind of hear that crackling. wood crackling. Yeah. It's a little bit more intense now than it was. So. We're going to take a short break here, and we'll be back in a minute to continue my conversation with Cole. Thanks to the generous donations that poured in from our followers over the past two months, including over 200 readers and listeners who became first-time donors, The Traveler will enter 2024 with the revenues needed to keep us going for another six months. This has been a wonderful show of support that reflects not only great interest in the national park system and its management, but also in the value of editorially independent journalism. Between the loss of news organizations and the growth of AI-generated content, the role of journalists dedicated to their craft becomes increasingly important. In the realm of national parks, The Traveler has been able to expand its coverage of national parks and protected areas unlike any other media organization. And that's all thanks to you, our readers and listeners. For those who have made a donation, our thanks again. For those who are considering one, where else can you find such unique coverage? Articles, photos, videos, and podcasts on a daily basis. Your donation helps as we work to ensure the traveler endures. As always, visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org. Gear up for 2024 with Interior Federal Credit Union. Synchronize all your accounts in one place with their tool, Money Management. Money Management allows you to create budgets to fit your lifestyle, set up goals for the future, monitor your account and loan balances with one login, track debt, and more. Apply for membership at interiorfcu.org and sign up for digital banking to get started. Federally insured by NCUA. Full of stunning photography and thought-provoking reads, Smokey's Life is a biannual magazine produced by Great Smoky Mountains Association. Members receive it free of charge each spring and fall, and it is available for purchase in retail stores throughout Great Smoky Mountains National Park and online at smokiesinformation.org. Not surprisingly, even though these two locomotives never leave the grounds of the historical park, there's a lot of maintenance required to keep them running smoothly and looking grand. Back in the engine house, Chisholm went over some of the work that goes into maintaining the Jupiter and the number 119, which, by the way, currently is in a state of disassembly as the crew reconditions the locomotive cab, its walkways, and other aspects of the steamer. It's one solid cast piece of brass. That comes off every year, it's repolished. But of course, a lot of it seems cosmetic, but a lot of the parts we have to take off to get to other things. Sure. So in between this uh, crosshead body and the upper and lower crosshead bolts, there's a check valve. Yeah. We have to check the check valve every year, so we end up taking the whole thing apart, and while we have it apart, might as well polish it. The other problem we have too is when they, both engines were here in 1869, they were essentially brand new. Uh, the 119 had been in service since November of 1868. I think Jupiter was in service as early or 
latest, February of 1869. So they were relatively brand new. And the engineer and fireman were typically assigned to an engine. So much like firemen today at a firehouse are always waxing their engines because they took right. pride in it. Right. Same thing back then. It was their engine, so they took pride in it. So because of that, every year in May, when we have May 10th, they got to look their best. So it's a, oh, they're gorgeous. A lot gorgeous. Of but uh, then we also try to do larger projects every year, too, and because a lot of the maintenance be a lot to try to do everything in one year so everything is kind of on a cycle almost so like last year we took the cab off jupiter and then repainted it so i was gonna ask if you repainted it all yeah and then uh, this winter we have 19's cab off and that's a stained cab so we've sanded it down so we can restain it and refinish it to put it back on and that should last us hopefully another five to ten years so you said that what looks like gold paint is gold leaf Mm -hmm. What's it all worth? Uh, it's not a ton. Like, if you tried to scrape every little bit off and then go retire, it's not going to last you in retirement for right. long. But it's, uh, it's thinner than a, a single strand of hair. Oh. So okay. it, it's applied in flakes. So you're not going to get too much weight out of it. Gotcha. Gotcha. But it, it looks impressive, especially if you see it in the sunlight. You yeah. can tell it's gold because of the way it shines. Now, this must be a lot of fun. I mean, if you grew up with model trains, to, to be able to, to drive these babies. Yeah, it's uh, it's fun. It's a little bit more realism than playing with the, the small in-scale stuff in your basement. Yeah. But yeah, you can see that 119 here isn't quite up to snuff and it's ready little, to go anywhere. a little dusty. Yeah. So. so the 119 over here, is it... I mean, historically, they're both the same age, so to speak. One wasn't a lot older than the other one. Yeah, uh, both locomotives were completed in 1868. Uh, so they they were about roughly the same. Uh, 119 was finished later, but got into service faster because they could ship it out by rail and right. get it there, where Jupiter had to be shipped by ship. So it took her six months from New York to California. So she may have been finished first, but she didn't get service till afterwards yeah now does the 119 have a cab as big as jupiter yeah uh just just, it's just off yeah so the the cab's sitting over there for now Um, we've sanded it down we're going to restain it refinish it Um, but there's a few other things we're working on too the running board that would be right here is what the cab sits on we had to do some repair work to that. Yeah. So before we can put the cab back on, we have to finish the running board, which is sitting over here. And once we get this one done, then we got to take the other one off. So it's almost like a giant puzzle every year that you got to make sure you put it back together in the right order and get the things ready to go back on in the right order. Otherwise, you have a whole bunch of stuff piling up in the shop. Now, not sure what you call that piece. You got a little picture up there. Is that? symbolic of anything? Yeah, uh, so the original 119 had murals like these. Uh, there's two on the sand dome and then there's two on the back of the tender. Uh, the gentleman you see here is uh, Johnny Appleseed and there's photographs of that mural so we, we knew what to put back up there. And the murals on the back of the tender, the one on this side uh, is Patterson Falls in Patterson, New Jersey. Oh really? And Rogers Locomotive Works, who was the manufacturer of the original 119, was based in Patterson, New Jersey. So there's the mural there and then the mural on the far side uh, looks like the, uh, the Tetons or the Rocky Mountains or some western mountain range so we have photographs of those murals as well the the thought was that if the 
Patterson Falls represented the east and the Rocky Mountains the west. Johnny Appleseed is an eastern figure representing, you know, sowing the seeds of civilization as he goes west. The other mural must have been a western figure, and I say that because we don't know who was on the other side. All the photographs we have from that side of the engine, somebody's standing out on the running board right in front of it. Oh. So it's the best guess, but there's a lot of western figures you can pick from. You know, Lewis and Clark, Kit Carson, Daniel Boone. Jim Bridger. Well, Jim Bridger's who they ended up going with. Really? Yeah, the 119 was based out of Ogden, Utah, and so the thought was Jim Bridger's kind of the, the big western figure. In Local hero. He's the one that would get the billing. Yeah. Now, whether or not that's accurate, nobody can tell you. That's a story. He, we're going to stick to it. He looks good on there, so we'll, we'll keep him. Yeah. So, I mean, since these are locomotives from the 1800s, where do you get parts? It's a good question. Uh, so a lot of the parts we can still somewhat order, like uh, valves. We can still buy PAL valves, um, piping, what have you. Um, but there's been times where, like the oil cups, the caps form just come off and on real easy. So when oiling, you're pulling all the lids off the caps, you're oiling and you're putting them all back on. Wear and tear. Someone will talk to you, you'll forget, and you'll leave a cap off and it'll fall off the engine. So then you got to walk the tracks looking for it. But if you don't find it, then we, uh, we do have a machine shop where we can make new ones. Try not to. If, if needed, we've had new caps made, we've had different parts built. Um, even some of the tools we use been made in-house so that we could better do what we need to do. Sure. Um, what about wheels? Well, fortunately, for the most part, we've been all right. Uh, the Jupiter actually did have a flat spot develop on a set of pilot wheels. Um, basically what it was, uh, was a flaw in the casting. Air pocket was in there, and then over 40 years of running, it just eventually flattened out. Yeah. So it had to be replaced. So we ended up having a contract to have a whole new wheel set. Wow. Made, and then when it was shipped here, we painted it, and then you can kind of see these set of rails on the floor here. There's a drop table jack, and we were able to maneuver the engine around to get the wheel underneath that, so we can then drop the whole wheel set out from underneath the engine push it over to the center of the shop, jack it back up, and then roll it out of here, and then put the new one on. It uh, it took a full day, but that was just one of these smaller pilot wheels. In the last couple of years, we've taken all the drivers off and repainted them and inspected them. And uh, just one set is about 7,000 pounds. Yeah. So. The two locomotives that met head-on at Promontory Summit in the Utah Territory back in 1869 were never supposed to be there. I'll explain why in a minute, but first let me tell you about these two steam engines. The Jupiter, which arrived at the summit from the west, was owned by the Central Pacific Railroad. It had been built the previous year by the Schenectady Locomotive Works of New York State. It was known as a 440 locomotive, the description based on the number of wheels it had. Four wheels on the leading truck of wheels and four driving wheels. Since there were no trailing wheels, the zero was tagged onto the end. The Jupiter was also one of five locomotives built to the same specifications for the Central Pacific Railroad. The others were named the Storm, Whirlwind, Leviathan, and Gazelle. After being built, they were disassembled and shipped to the West Coast via boat. How did Jupiter get its name? According to an entry in Wikipedia, Jupiter was known as King of Gods or God of Sky 
and it was common for railroads of the 1800s to name engines after mythological legends to invoke awe and wonder. The other locomotive that arrived at Promontory Summit on May 10, 1869, was the Union Pacific's number 119. No fancy name there, just 119. It, too, was a 440 configuration steam engine. It was built by the Rogers Locomotive and Machine Works of Patterson, New Jersey, in 1868, along with four other locomotives numbered 116, 117, 118, and 120. Once the 119 was placed into service, it was kept busy hauling coal from Rollins, Wyoming, to Ogden in Utah. So, how did the Jupiter and 119 come to meet up at Promontory Summit? According to the National Park Service, the Central Pacific Railroad president, Leland Stanford, had selected the Antelope to haul his special car to the event. However, en route to Promontory Summit, the Stanford special followed a passenger train carrying sightseers to the wedding of the rails. As that train passed through a large mountain cut still being cleared, workmen in the cut did not notice a small green flag flying from the locomotive. That flag indicated that another train was following close behind. Immediately after the first train passed, workmen rolled a huge log down the cut. Around the corner came Stanford Special, and the Antelope locomotive struck the log. Park Service historians say the Antelope wasn't derailed, but it was badly damaged, and Stanford's cars were coupled to the other train's locomotive, the Jupiter. The 119 also wasn't intended to be at the crowning glory of the Transcontinental Railroad's completion. It seems that the train hauling Union Pacific Vice President Thomas Durant to the event was stranded at Devil's Gate in Weber Canyon, a narrow gorge east of Ogden, when stormwaters washed away some of the supports of a bridge across the Weber River. While the locomotive was able to give passenger cars a nudge to cross the bridge, the engineer thought the locomotive was too heavy to ride the rails across it. As a result, a call went out to the station in Ogden, and the 119 was sent to pick up the passenger cars and Durant's special car and take them the rest of the way to Promontory Summit. While neither engine survived, the Jupiter was sold for a scrap in 1901, and the 119 met a similar fate not too many years later. In 1975, O'Connor Engineering Laboratories of Costa Mesa, California, agreed to build replicas of the two locomotives. With no plans or blueprints, engineers and technicians used a locomotive design engineer's handbook from 1870 and scalings of enlarged 1869 photographs of the two locomotives to construct the locomotives you see today at Golden Spike National Historical Park. While the annual steam festival is the main attraction of the year at the park, you can see the locomotives operating daily from May 1st through mid-October, except on days when they are scheduled for maintenance. That's our show for this week. We hope you found it interesting and spurred a desire to visit Golden Spike National Historical Park or track down a model train set of your own to set up in your house. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Rappencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Parks Travelers podcasts. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com. Editing and production work 
for the National Parks Traveler podcast is done by Splitbeard Productions. You can learn more about us at splitbeardproductions.com. National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.